You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. There are many different paths you can take, but there's only one road to Atlanta. The high drive deep out to left field. He clubbed it. Brady twisting and turning, looking up and giving up. It's a home run for Danby Swanson. Player out towards shallow right. That's big trouble. Albies going back. He dives and he makes the catch. What a play, Ozzy Albies. Swanson is headed for three. He'll try for it inside the parker. Relay throw comes toward the plate. He'll score standing, and it's his second inside the park home run of the season. This is your weekly podcast dedicated to the Atlanta Braves farm system. Follow the show on Twitter at Road the Number Two Atlanta. Now hit the road with your hosts. Eric Cole, Gaurav Vidak, and Garrett Spain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Road to Atlanta, a podcast devoted solely to the Braves farm system and Braves prospects. I am one of your hosts, Eric Cole. You may recognize me for my work over on TalkingChop.com, where I've been covering the minor leagues and the major leagues since, I guess this is my fifth season now. So I've been doing this for a little while. Joining me today are Gaurav Vidak and Matt Powers, who have been working with me over on Talking Chop for quite a while. We've been doing this podcast off and on for the past couple of years. And we're pretty excited because we get to talk to you guys about the 2019 MLB Draft. First, uh, Gaurav, how are you doing, man? I'm doing wonderful. Just uh, just finished my workout. Good to go. Feeling good. Ready to talk some baseball. Matt, what about you, man? Have you recovered from the draft extravaganza? Still a little tired, but yeah. Yeah, I have at this point, I think. Yeah, Matt's been kind of going full on. Uh, the first day was particularly brutal for me. Um, I'm actually on vacation right now. I'm at the beach, but uh, I couldn't really, like, the when the vacation was happening, couldn't be avoided. And so I've been down here doing draft stuff, and Monday almost killed me. And sandwiched by that is that I was really sick, like had a really bad stomach bug over the weekend, even trying to get down to the beach. And then the day after the draft, the draft I did, my bug came back. And so I'm kind of still in the recovery phase. So if this is a little bit more low energy than we're, than you guys are used to, I apologize in advance. We're just very tired from all the draft stuff. Uh, there's a lot of draft coverage you can read about over on Talking Chop if you want to kind of get caught up on things. But we're going to give you kind of our – this is our initial look at the draft. But we do have a couple uh, items we want to co- I want to cover first. Uh, and that is we saw two pretty high-profile promotions uh, just in the last day or so, which is that William Contreras – and Grayson Janista, both from the four of Firefrogs, just got promoted to Mississippi. Uh, Garav, I'll start with you. What are your kind of initial thoughts on those two guys getting promoted, considering that like they, that their numbers didn't really like jump off the page as being promotion-worthy? Yeah, uh, I, I don't know why. I mean, obviously it was forced by injury, and that's just what's going to happen. Uh, Contreras has not had a good season with the bats so far. He's got a sub-700 OPS in, in high A. Uh He's throwing out 33% of would-be base dealers, so it's pretty solid. He, I mean, he's reunited with Ian Anderson in that first start was yesterday, and Ian was fantastic going five five and two-thirds with seven strikeouts and one walk. So, I mean, obviously, he's really good with the pitchers, and I, maybe maybe that played into it. Uh, 
but like production wise, it's not really there. And then Grayson Janice is probably one of the most disappointing players, uh, this year. Again, also like Williams got a sub 700 OPS. He's struggling versus lefty. Well, really, really badly versus lefties. He's got a sub 500 OPS against them. Like that's not something that you want in a lineup, uh, period. Uh, that's all that's beyond unplayable, but you know, it's, He's, I know he's overhauled a whole lot and it's going to take a bunch of reps to get, kind of get used to the new swing and the new, the new stance. But honestly, like, I don't think that it would have normally happened if it wasn't for the injuries. Matt, what about you, man? I have to agree. I mean, Janice was drafted for his bat and he has not lived up to his draft status and hype. I mean, this is not the bat you take in the second round the way that he's performed so far this year. Obviously, you have to take into account that he was doing it in high A, that he was doing it in a pitcher's league in the Florida State League, but it wasn't a particularly impressive showing for what you'd expect. I mean, it does make you feel a little better that Nick Madrigal from the White Sox, who was a much higher pick, was also promoted with a very similar overall OPS. So it's not as though it's only Janista that's struggling a little bit and got promoted, but it doesn't really make you feel great about where he's at, even though there's quite a bit of potential there. And Contreras is a little bit better since he's more known for his all-around game, but still not quite the season that you would hope for, even though he's having an adequate, just an adequate year, which isn't really bad. Yeah, I want, I have a couple thoughts on this. I agree that, like, the numbers themselves, especially just, like, the counting stats, have not been good for either one of those guys, right? But the thing about it is, one, the Florida State League has been particularly a down year offensively. You won't see very many 800 OPSs in that league, period, this year. And combine that with the fact that the, the the Florida the Florida team has like seen constant rainouts a lot of, like you're, they're they're kind of playing in this like weird situation where like there's a lot of double headers a lot of games where you'd think they'd be prepared to play and then they won't be able to because of wet grounds or the, the weather not cooperating and things like that we have seen in the past and it's not just these two guys really good offensive prospects not perform well in Florida and in high A and I think a lot of that is a product product of the league. And I also think that it's just kind of the, what the Braves treat high A as, which is they have them work on specific things down there. And if they choose and if they like meet those conditions, that they will get bumped up to double A, regardless of what the overall numbers are telling them. And that means like working on mechanical adjustments and things like that. They don't keep guys um, unless it's like, you know, Braxton Davidson, who seems to like have bought a house down there at this point. You know, it's not a situ- it's not a place where any high-profile prospects really stick around very long, uh, especially position players. So there's things that I like. I mean, Contreras, you know, he's younger, and I thought he would have done better with the bat, but I also am, again, skeptical just in general of the numbers that come out of high A. But he needs just to be working on just learning how to be a catcher. And he had been at high A for a while, and I think that being able to work with some better arms and some arms that are really going to have to ultimately challenge his abilities behind the plate with better stuff, well, it, with with that Mississippi rotation, which is going to have a lot of those kind of guys between Ian Anderson and Kyle Muller, Joey Wentz, you know, those kinds of guys. Tucker Davidson's another one where they're going to have to learn how to call games for high-level p- pitching prospects and they're going to be able to 
you know, help him learn how to be game callers at a uh, game caller at a higher level. I like that promotion. The Janista one on its surface seems more puzzling. The one thing I have looked at I mean, the numbers against lefties are, are, are legitimately not good, but that his batted pro, his batted ball profile, at least the one that's listed on fan graphs kind of shows that there's a lot, there's more hard contact and there's kind of a better approach than the overall surface numbers show. And I'm really interested to see what he looks like against these, upper these like these better pitching prospects and more importantly in a different league altogether to see if maybe some of that sort of that batted ball profile stuff is going to play better than it has in, in high a i'm not saying that it's going to be a, an easy transition for him and i think that I, I don't this isn't a situation where these two guys got promoted you know right after the draft that they'll you know maybe move the move the way to triple a at the end of the year i don't see that happening i think this is where they end up for the entirety of the year um but i think the combination of Getting them out of a league that they don't, the Braves don't seem to really keep anyone at for very long, combined with the fact that the reality is that they feel like they're going to have to move some guys from these lower levels up to make some room for a lot of these pro- these prospects that they have drafted. I I expect to see some of those guys making their de- making their full season debuts this year as opposed to only sticking around in rookie ball. So between those two things, I see that these moves are precipitated somewhat by that, combined with just not wanting to be in the Florida State League for any appreciable amount of time anyway. Okay, we are now at the point where we talk about the draft. Before we kind of get into specific names and stuff, I kind of want to get everyone's just kind of overall, like if you have to give them a grade just on the the draft as a whole, I want to get everyone on record before we kind of talk into that. Matt, let's go to you first. If they can sign even five of the six high-profile prep players from day three, it's a solid B. If they sign all of them, it's somewhere between a B and a B plus for me. Grav, what about you, man? Yeah, as the draft expert on this show, I would have to say that I agree <laughs> with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would, I'd probably give it like a, you know, you know me, you know my, my crush on Joe Adele as a prospect. You know, I'm all about the, especially in this draft, since it's likely our last one and, you know, the top 10, I wanted super high, super high ceiling. Not really necessarily low floor, but super high ceiling, raw, very talented prospect. So while we won't get into specifics right now, I wasn't too thrilled with the first three rounds. It seems like uh, they did real well on, on day three. So I'll probably agree with that and say a solid B to plus. It's a very meh draft for me. Uh, and it has nothing to do with the Langoliers pick, really. Because I understand the Langoliers pick. Like, if the, if the rest of your draft can I take that all out of account, I understand why you pick Langoliers where you do. Just because it's hard to find really good catchers that are sticking to stick behind the plate with any amount of offensive ability whatsoever. And I do think Langoliers is that. He's not a lock to be a major leaguer. He's not a lock to be a productive bat. But it's a in a, in a world where it's very hard to find any bat cup college catchers or catchers in general that will pan out long term and have a have like will absolutely stick behind the plate and could feasibly give you some offensive production. I get why you make that pick. But overall, I mean and I've heard this from multiple people now, it's a very vanilla draft, except if you really start like kind of squinting your eyes and looking at a couple of the day two picks and then the day three guys who and it seems like what the Braves did was a departure from their usual strategy of 
kind of loading up on high upside talent early and kind of betting on tools and kind of betting on projection with some high school guys, they it felt like they went with very safe picks with limited ceiling. And that started with the shoemake pick, and it kind of went from there. I know that the purpose of that was to get guys that fit well within, like, analytical models and then use that money and and not spend – Big time amounts of money on those two guys in Shumik and in uh, Philip from, the, from their round three pick or their round two pick, and then going into the the day three with Prime Gale to like sign a bunch of these you know four hundred thousand five hundred thousand type players, which is ultimately what they did. That is a strategy, and it could feasibly pay off for them, especially if you know any number of those guys really work out. But in terms of like purely from looking at talent and looking at what they got, especially on day one. It, it's 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 kind of meh. It's very vanilla. It's very you know. The, the, there's just not a ton of upside uh, in any of these picks, and that that's the problem when you. It, it, it felt very much like a draft from an organization that was deathly afraid of not getting anything of value from the draft, and that maybe that comes from the international signings. Maybe that comes from you know the fact that they did not get their first round pick last year in Carter Stewart because he didn't sign, and they felt like they had to get something of some value from this draft. But it felt it felt like an organization that was scared, and it felt like they were risk-averse. And that doesn't mean that they're not going to get value, high-value picks from these guys, but it's just that's just kind of how it felt to me. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you use a first-round draft pick and, you know, on a catcher, especially when you associate it with, uh, Anthopolis is Pentecost and we all know how he turned out. Now, he's a much like, I think it's safe to say he was a higher ranked, like, catching prospect than, than Langoliers. Is that bold to say? Like, he was probably a slightly higher, although it is, does need to be said that I don't think he was a failure on his own, but the injuries ruined any chance he actually had. Yeah, for sure, but there's like that's that's part of it, right? The risk of drafting to drafting a catcher is just so high because of the toll it takes on your body. Like that's you know, that's part of my frustration with the pick. Of course, like hopefully everything works out well and, and Langoliers is up there uh in Atlanta, like they said, within the next like two or three years, I think is what one person said, which I think is just crazy. But uh I that's why that's why it, it kinda not stunk, but kinda stuck out to me, like the I just, when you have a top 10 pick, you want it to be on someone, for me personally, you want it to be on someone that has a super high ceiling that can make a huge impact on not only like the minor league ranks, but also in the majors. And I just, I don't see it with him. And that's probably why uh, I'm a little frustrated. Like, I just don't see that elite talent that you can get uh, in, a, in the number nine pick. But, you know, maybe that's just me putting unrealistic expectations on it. Oh, I don't, I don't think it's just you. And actually, this is a good place to talk about the Langoliers pick because I do disagree somewhat with that, but I know Matt has strong feelings on picking Langoliers and he was pretty vocal about it before the draft. So Matt, just kind of, just taking Langoliers, picking him at number nine, just out of the context of the entire draft. What, what are your thoughts there? I was very disappointed in day one overall. I mean, I would not have made any of those three picks at that point. Langoliers would have been fine for me at 21, which I think he was 
where I valued him was somewhere between 9 and 21. I said that 13 to 17 range. So it's not that he was a complete reach, even though he was a reach at where he went. But I definitely would have gotten higher upside all the way around on day one. And I think everyone knows who my first two picks would have been. I mean, I've said it many times that... I would have taken Carroll at nine, Corbin Carroll, the outfielder from Washington High School, who's just a great contact hitter who has tons of extra base power, even though the home run power is maybe that 15 to 20 home run range with 20 to 30 steals and able to play center field defensively. And then obviously everyone knows I would have taken Daniel Espino at 21. I probably would have taken him at nine if I actually was just going with the best available player, but knowing that there was a chance that he would have slipped to 21 and he actually ended up going 24 to Cleveland, I would have probably arranged it so it would have been Carroll and then Espino with 9 and 21 myself. And then with 60, with Phillip, I had him as a guy that I would have taken maybe around 6 to 10. I mean, there's some upside in him, not a ton, but there is some upside in him. I mean, he's got to be an underslot guy. There are some tools, but definitely not a pick that I would have made at that point. There were countless other guys that I would have taken there. I mean, same thing with Shoemaker at 21. I mean, if you really wanted a college bat, a college shortstop, there were guys like Logan Davidson and Brady McConnell right there who I think give you that college bat along with quite a bit higher upside. Of course, both of them come with quite a bit more risk because of the hit tool, but if a guy like Davidson can even reach a 45 with this hit tool, he could be a real star in this game because he does everything so well all around. And McConnell is just as toolsy with similar hit tool questions. I mean, he was a top prospect out of high school, didn't really do much as a freshman at Florida because of injury and performance but rebounded this year even though the strikeout numbers were high and he was a sophomore-eligible draft guy. So that's the way that I would have done things myself. So since we're talking about the day one stuff, here's my my general thoughts. I, I tend to think that Shea Langoliers has more offensive upside or at least offensive ability than Matt does. I just I think there's just a disagreement there. And I think that he has a better hit tool, maybe not as much power, but that's just kind of like splitting hairs as to why I think that Matt kind of thinks he's in that 13 to 17 range. So picking him at nine, maybe a little bit more of a reach. I think that it's pretty close. And if you feel like you need to get that, you, you, you really wanted a catcher and you wanted a high, like one of the better catchers in the class that picking them at nine is totally fine. And like, you know, he's a really good defensive catcher. I think he's going to be a pretty, he's going to have a pretty good bat. How that all plays out is going to be interesting to see. Uh, I think he is a guy that's going to be starting in full season ball. And, you know, some people are talking about him already starting in high A. I'm not sure about, I'm not sure quite about that. I think that he might start in Rome. And then depending on how he does there, he might move, move up a bit, kind of like Janisa did last year. Uh, I don't see him going to rookie ball or anything like that. I, I didn't have, I didn't have a super strong reaction to the Langoliers pick because I always kind of thought it was very possible. And also, I, I didn't necessarily have any problems with it so long as it, in the context of the rest of the draft, you know, we still got some upside. Where things got a little bit weird for me 
where the again where you guys it, where the, was the Braden Shoemake pick at twenty one as well as the Bo Phillip pick in the second round, those felt like right off the right off the rip those were under slot got signings and we're kind of talking about this in the context of that we don't know for sure what these guys are signing for uh, and our feelings probably changed I would say for us radically. If these guys, like, if Braden Shoemaker is getting full slot or close to it, and Bo Phillip is getting a, a lot of money with that second round pick, that, that lead doesn't leave as, ton, as much money to kind of sign some of these day three guys that we like a lot, and our feelings change about the draft overall very significantly and not in a good way. Um, the thing about the Shoemaker pick is that, you know, people talk, you know, the, the national, me- the, some of the national media guys and the beat writers especially who clearly have not followed the draft very much at all, is that, you know, they think that Shoemaker has all this upside and he has this frame to build on. He's a college shortstop, and there's only so much physical projection that a college guy is going to have. I'm not really sure if I care what kind of frame he has right now. If he's already in his 20s and he's not hitting for a ton of power and he's not really showing a ton of upside, I'm not sure you're going to get it. Now, Kylie McDaniel actually had some pretty salient thoughts on him. It was that he is exactly the kind of guy that if you're taking a scouting analytical model and you're trying to do, using projections, he is a guy that has hit for average and has had some production in the SEC, and those kinds of guys are going to grade out well almost always in those sort of analytical models. I get that, and I think that he'll he'll hit for some average. He'll be reasonably good in the minor leagues, and he very well could end up just being a major leaguer. I just don't see much upside in him, which makes me, which again makes me think that maybe if they liked him in those analytical models, and they felt like they could get him at a cheaper rate, that's why it expl- that that kind of explains the pick in terms of a strategic from a strategic perspective. I do think they wanted Quinn Priester at twenty one, and he ended up just going to the Pirates a couple picks before that. I am with Matt. I don't think that anyone, if anyone watches Corbin Carroll play, that they don't think that he's ended up being a really good baseball player down the line. And I would have picked him at nine without even hesitating. I get why you, you pick Langoliers though. In terms of at 21, they better hope that these day three picks that their scouting department is on point with some of these guys they identified, whether it be, you know, the Michael Harris at, you know, on day two, uh, the, and the Anthony Polini kid that we're going to talk about a little bit later and some of these other day three picks like Vaughn Grissom and all these other guys, they have to be right on those and they have to feel like that they spread that money around smartly because otherwise some of these picks look bad because, I mean, I don't think there's much upside with Shoemaker, period. And the Bo Phillip pick, everyone, I mean, like even the broadcasters when they were doing the day on day one, they were all kind of looking at themselves like, why is this guy going on day on on day one? And it's because there's just not a lot of upside. It felt like a money-saving pick. I know that the, the the best joke to make there is that, you know, Liberty Media is just being cheap. I think there's zero world where the Braves don't spend all their draft allotment, which makes me think that either they've spread, they've, they've, they decided to spread their money around in what was a fairly weak draft overall, particularly on the pitching side, or, like, it, it feels like a miss just kind of at a first glance. And that's – I understand the frustration, but at the same time – it's just a very different strategy, and it makes me feel like one that the the Braves were almost too risk averse, and that 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 didn't feel particularly awesome on day one. Does that seem fair? I feel like, and I didn't feel like this after day one, but after watching the rest of the draft play out, that they went safe on day one and moderately safe on day two, even though they got some guys with some upside. Because they didn't truly believe in any of the talent at the prices it would have cost. I think that 
for whatever, even though I didn't completely agree with this strategy, they didn't feel like paying the slot at nine is nearly five million. I think it's 4.95 and the slot at 21 is, uh, just over three. And then at 60, it's a little over one. So I think they were thinking that's what five, eight, over nine million dollars on day one that they had just in slot value. So I'm thinking they probably didn't think that there were three guys out there that they were willing to give a total of nine million dollars to and then just go with lower upside guys to just fill in. I think they decided to go with quantity over quality a little bit, even though they got some guys with some quality and try to take multiple chances on guys with upside and hope to hit on one of the multiple guys instead of three higher ceiling guys that they would have been looking at otherwise and also try to restock some numbers in a farm system that's very thin at the lower levels at this point. I mean, there's definitely something to that, and they definitely restocked. I mean, there's definitely some guys that they're going to be playing in the lower minors. Um, so, Garav, just kind of looking at some of these day two guys, was there anyone in particular that sort of stood out to you, or are you kind of in the camp that a lot of people are, is that they kind of – that's not where the most exciting stuff happened? Yeah, I think one person kind of kind of stands out. I know Matt will know a ton more about this guy than me, but that would have to be uh, – how do you even, I don't even know how to say his name, Paolini. Like, I had no idea who he was. Like, as soon as the pick was announced, I had to go to the internet because I've literally never heard of him. And the more digging I did, the more, like, intriguing of a prospect he could be. Like, this is a complete lottery ticket. Like, he could end up being, you know, an extremely good player, but because, like, the, the tools project but he could also be a complete dud. It's a very, very, very intriguing pick for me. Um, I do like the Casey Cal- I don't need, like I, I need to work on these names, but the Casey College, uh, pick as well. You know, a guy that strikes out almost 15 per nine, uh, as a reliever. Like that, that, that's really intriguing. It could be someone that not necessarily moves up quickly, but someone to watch that could move up because it seems like he's pretty set. His role is pretty set. He's going to be a reliever. Um, but the Paolini one is probably the, for me, the most intriguing pick there is just because he's so unknown. He's someone that like, even the national guys, the guys that like their careers are about the draft didn't really have much information on him. So I kind of can't wait until he gets into camp because I want to see what this kid has. So I actually do want to talk about the Paolini pick a second because this is, uh, during the draft, uh, this is actually one that was like kind of sort of on Matt's radar and Matt's like our guy. He's, you know, if there's a draft prospect out there, you know, Matt very, is very likely to have some information, uh, on him. Um, but, uh, a couple of my sources in the Braves, they were really quick to get in touch with me about him. Um, and they really, the, the area scout up in Connecticut where he's from really liked him and they did a lot of work on this kid plus runner seems to have some power, you know, high makeup, high makeup. And he has some rule tools that he, and he could probably play anywhere in the outfield. Again, this is a, this is a, this is a fifth round pick out of high school. So he's a kid that is far from a sure thing. If he was a sure thing, he would have been on, you know, a first or a second round pick type. And probably is going to get more money, but he is a kid that's going to be an interesting one to kind of watch, especially in the, he's going to be a kid that starts in rookie ball. I don't imagine he moves particularly quickly. 
but he's the one that has some real tools and he's one that we're going to be watching closely. Uh, Michael Harris is another, another kid that I believe was their third round pick. Uh, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you know, again, two way player, bunch of tools has been kind of a part of that sort of the, the amateur development that, you know, major league baseball has been doing for a while. Um, we we're pretty sure he's going to be, um, he's going to be playing in the field as opposed to pitching, but he has a fallback. He's a two way guy. He, he has a potential future on the mound as well as with the bat. So, Another really interesting guy. Uh, I like the I like the college pick too. You know, a reliever that strikes out a bunch of guys. He's probably one of the better pure relief prospects in the draft overall. So in terms of a, a from the please help our bullpen, someone get some real bull, relief prospects that should at least give them a real relief prospect that's going to be in their system. Um, another name that I know that Aaron was particularly high on, and they were happy they took late on day two was Ricky Devito, and I think Matt has more information on him than I do though. Yeah, so I'll start out with Polini, the fifth-round pick. And really, he was a guy that I had on my radar but did not actually have any of my notes, my own notes on. I actually caught his name back in the fall because of a performance at a tournament where a local guy that I was tracking who was drafted yesterday ended up performing and performing well. And I saw the description of how... Polini looked at this big national event, and it sounded like a guy that I wanted to learn a little bit more about. I didn't really get to learn much more about him, because there just wasn't much out there about him, not much to go on, because obviously he plays in Connecticut, which is not really a great state for competition and or scouting. There's very few big prospects out of at least the high school ranks in Connecticut, so... He was a guy that I had at least circled to come back to as a guy with some real upside and a really promising write-up on him from the perfect game event that he was actually at. But that's as far as I got with him. I liked the Harris pick. I mean, two-way guy, tons of potential on either side of the ball. And obviously he's going to be a hitter. It's nice that he's a Braves fan and wore the Braves jersey underneath his gown at graduation, which obviously sticks out. And that's actually a bit of a theme with this class because there were quite a few of the day three guys that actually grew up as Braves fans. So I don't know that that was an intentional thing, but it worked out to be an interesting thing that was a theme of this draft. The Kalich pick on day two was a nice reliever to add. I liked the Darius Vines pick. I mean, it's the third time that he's been drafted. He's got decent stuff right now, just decent. But he's been drafted three times because of that. He's got some projection. and He's the one with a really good curveball, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's got a nice – he's got four pitches, but he's got really a nice three-pitch mix at the moment, a chance to develop the changeup a little bit more and have that four-pitch mix that would really help to raise his profile as a starter. And if he could gain just a couple more miles of velocity, I'm talking like maybe two to three more miles per hour on that fastball, he suddenly becomes much more interesting player. I mean, this year he actually got to Division One and played well after being in Juco before that. So he's definitely a guy, another guy that came from Juco this year and made it to D1 is... The Indiana pitcher, Tanner Gordon, teammate of Trey Riley and Juco last year. Bigger kid at uh, 6'5", 
and he's listed at 215, but I believe he's probably closer to 225, 230 than the listed 215. He's got a pretty big fastball. Not huge, but he's got good numbers at one of the better schools at producing talent and wins and losses in the Big Ten in, at Indiana. Uh, DeVito's got really big stuff. He didn't have the best year this year. The numbers were definitely down from what you hope they'd be, but the stuff is considerable. So you hope that he's got the ability with pro coaching to suddenly break out and realize his actual upside. But he's been a guy that's been on the radar. And I want to say he's a guy that probably with some sites would rank in that top 200. I know on the MLB uh, top 200 list, he was on that list somewhere. If not for his down year this year, he probably would have been at least 30 to 50 spots higher than where he would have been. But the down year in a conference that's not really SEC, ACC level competition definitely didn't help his stock. Uh, Cody Milligan is the Juco hitter that we took. He's He actually caught this year and only hit four home runs but stole 30 bases. He's a very versatile bat. He could probably play second base, which is where a lot of people would project him at. But he's played in the outfield. He's obviously caught. And I think there might be a little bit more power than what we've seen in the bat. If he can catch with his athleticism, he would be particularly interesting as a catcher, even if more power did not develop. And then the final pick on day two was Brandon Parker, the Juco bat, with quite a bit of power. He's also got quite a bit of swing and miss, but there's definitely something interesting in him. If I if I may interject real quick, I do have a, a question for you, Matt and Eric, and that's about uh, about Michael Harris. You know, you said he was a two way player, and uh, everything I've read about his bat, you know, it's he's got decent bat speed, and you know, he may he may he's athletic enough to play uh, defensively, but then like his arm at 18 and he's still a pretty small frame. Like he's throwing low nineties. He's got a good curveball. Uh, I know his changeup is like, okay right now, but that's something you can kind of teach. Like what, how do you expect him to play? Do you expect him to go like the, the uh, Austin Riley route and they'll just hammer him as a position player? Or do you think it's more likely for him to, to go pitch? Cause I'm a little more intrigued with him as a pitcher than I am a hitter. I think that he's going to get his first chance as a hitter. I mean, it's well known that his preference and his preference is to hit. And I think, obviously, when you're talking about signing a kid, you have to give that kid something that he might want, which would be the chance to hit if he gets what he wants. So I think that plays into it. I mean, it's not like he's not also a very good prospect as a hitter. So I think... You look at the fact he's a very good hitter prospect, definitely a top 10 rounds guy is just a hitter. And the fact he wants to hit would probably play into negotiations. All right, we have now reached the portion of the show where it's very likely that the the thoughts that Grav and I are going to have on these day three picks are going to be limited just because we're still just now learning about these guys and we we do lean on Matt a lot. He this is this is Matt's bread and butter. This is where he you know he's researching a lot of these guys and whenever he starts getting excited about names on day three is when I start listening and paying attention to kind of an overall strategy. 
as to what's going on. So, Matt, I just we're not. I don't want to go through all the day three names because we'd be here for like three hours. But kind of give us like the the big the big guys. I think it's like probably five or six guys that are in the prep ranks. If the Braves can sign them, and that's going to be a big part of this whole overall strategy, is kind of how they're going to be able to get some upside into the system. Uh, give us those like five or six guys and kind of why we should be getting excited or at least be excited that the Braves have them in the fold, even though there's a good chance that not all these guys are going to pan out. So the 11th round pick is Von Grissom from the Orlando area, Haggerty High School, which if it sounds familiar to most people, it's because fifth overall pick Riley Green is from Haggerty High School. So Riley Green's high school teammate. I actually spoke with him on the phone earlier today. I had the chance to interview him, and he's a great kid. Grew up a Braves fan, which is one of the themes that I mentioned of this draft. And he's got a very promising bat. I ranked him number 20 on the pre-draft third base list. He doesn't have a definite defensive position. He's a high school shortstop. Most people think he's going to play third base. He's played quite a bit of second base as well. He's even thrown as a reliever for his high school team. I mean, he doesn't have a fastball that would necessarily get him taken in the 11th round, but he does have some potential on the mound, even though that would definitely be more of a fallback because his bat is very promising. He's got a potential to be a bat-first guy with great bat speed, really good power, some nice contact ability, and being Riley Green's teammate has helped him in the fact that He's been looked at a lot by scouts, so this is not just some guy that is only looked at by a couple guys. He was looked at by everybody. He played against high-level competition and had a great WWBA, the World Woodbat Championships, last fall, and which is obviously big because success with the Woodbats helps translate to the next level where they only use Woodbats. So he's definitely a bat that I like and a great kid as well. So that's probably one of the picks that I like the most on day three. And without really getting too much into the signability there, you don't take a guy with your 11th round pick, and this isn't just for the Braves, this is pretty much across the league, without having some discussions with that player about signing and feeling good about signing that player. So the odds are likely that he ends up signing, even though I don't think it's a guarantee that it does happen. Uh, beyond him, I'll talk about the rest of the bats first. The 18th round pick out of one of the top high school programs in the country. Uh, Makai Backstrom out of Junipero Sarah High School in California, in LA. I mean, this high school has produced countless players that have been drafted. Um, Royce Lewis was drafted number one out of this high school a couple of years ago. They produced a bunch of big-time football players. I want to say uh, Juju Smith-Schuster was also from this school. Uh, if not him, it was another one of the big USC receiver recruits a couple of years ago. But this school just produces a ridiculous amount of great athletic talent through every sport. This kid, at this time last year, even through August, probably would have been a late first-round pick high school first baseman with huge power and the chance to hit for some average, too. He's a Fresno State commit. I know that the Braves really liked him, and he liked the Braves dating back to last year. I had him on my radar and mentioned him to Eric as a guy 
to watch maybe in August last year. I mean, he's a guy I've been tracking for a very long time, and he had a down year this year. Did not hit quite as well as anyone expected, but the power and the potential with the bat are still there, and I don't think you take a guy like that in the 18th round without thinking that there's a decent chance to sign him, especially when it's known already as a fact that the 20th round pick had agreed to sign, and we'll get into that a little later, but he agreed to sign before being drafted by the Braves, uh, obviously on a phone call on day three, but it makes you feel a little bit better that the guys in front of him at least had that same call. Um, Caden Morton, the 19th round pick, the center fielder out of Texas, is a former, well, is a two-way, two-sport player, I should say, and a two-way player. So he's a pitcher and an outfielder, really athletic football guy. Obviously, football in Texas is the big sport, and he ended up going with baseball. He's got a lot of potential on the mound, but I think his real potential is with the bat because he's such a great athlete. I mean, this is a guy who's a little raw as a baseball player. I think that just factors in because he's a two-sport guy and a two-way guy that he's splitting time between sports, splitting time between pitching and hitting. So that really helps to explain why he might be a little bit more raw. But, I mean, he can hit. He can hit for power potentially with both of those he can definitely run he can defend he's got a very strong arm obviously since he would have been a pretty significant candidate as just a pitcher so there's a lot to like with him as well um we look at the pitchers that were taken the 13th rounder out of florida trinity catholic tyler owens he's undersized but he's got massive stuff he's only a 5185 pound right-hander he committed to in-state Florida, so I think there might have been signability questions. I know he was towards the bottom half of the top 200 over on MLB.com, but he's got huge stuff. He has a fastball up to 98 miles an hour. I think when you look at the fact that he's under six feet tall as a right-hander and doesn't really have a third pitch right now that lacks that changeup, he's probably a guy who has some real reliever risk. But you can't just write him off to a bullpen role because Bryce Wilson, when he was drafted, was considered only a two-pitch pitcher. And really, at that point, was more of just a one-pitch pitcher with his fastball. So I don't think it's out of the question that Braves coaches can work with him and keep him in a starting role, even though many people would expect him to end up being a reliever in the long run. Um, The next pick is Jared Johnson, the 14th round pick. He was announced as Isaiah Johnson. I was really confused because I had no notes on any Isaiah Johnson pitcher out of Mississippi High School. But once I found out that he was announced as Jared Johnson, I knew exactly who he was. He came out of nowhere this spring. And he ended up really becoming a pop-up prospect with a lot of helium. And based on talent alone, definitely should have gone much higher than this. He's also got a fastball up to that 97, 98 mile an hour range, but he's not a guy many people got to see because he popped up so late in the process. And on top of that, he was not facing the best competition in the part of Mississippi that he was pitching. So not many people saw him and no one really saw him pitch against great competition. So even though he was highly thought of, there was a lot of questions around him that 
couldn't really be answered pre-draft. So I think he's just a pure upside play at this point. But the upside is gigantic with him. He's probably one of my favorite picks on the day, obviously. And he's also a guy who grew up a Braves fan. And obviously it sounds like he's going to sign based on an article in Mississippi about him. Another guy that I really like that they took, another pitcher, another West Coast pitcher out of California, the second big West Coast draftee along with Backstrom, is Joey Estes. And he's another guy who, based on talent alone, should have gone much higher than that. But I think there was some signability with him. He's got good stuff as well. Another right-hander with not the biggest size. He's, I want to say, 6'2", and... 180, 190, but he's got the potential to do a lot. Uh, there were some college guys as well in there that I like. Peyton Williams has some real potential. The Division Two guy who is also one of these kids that grew up as Braves fans. The story with him, the 20th round pick, is after day two, he was headed back to um, college next year. But because he ended up getting drafted by the Braves as a sophomore, and I'm not sure if it was because he was a Braves fan and it was the Braves or because they offered him enough money, but he knew right away that he was willing to sign. And the comments from his coaches already indicate he's going to sign. He's got some interesting stuff as well. Uh, Connor Blair, the 15th round pick out of Washington, is another guy who ended up in his first year in Division One this year, and he had big numbers with the power and very limited at-bats because of injury. There's power there with a lot of swing and miss. I talked to some guys who've seen him out on the West Coast, and it sounds like there could be a little bit in there, but he's more of a depth guy, most likely. But the fact that he's at least got some potential is worth noting. Uh, a couple other guys that I liked would be the Georgia infielder, Riley Green, who had nearly a 900 OPS at Georgia this year. He was obviously a guy that was a little bit in between positions because I think he's more of a natural shortstop third baseman, but Georgia had... Um, Shunk and Shepard on that side of the infield. But the bat, probably if he was to return to school next year, would be a guy that would be much higher in play. Um, not completely sure that he's going to sign as a 26th round pick, but he's a guy worth watching. Bryce Ball out of Dallas Baptist is a big power-hitting first baseman out of a school that has produced some really good talent over the last couple of years, even though it's not a big-name school to most people. So he's a guy that I like as well. Uh, Chad Bryant, the Juco pitcher, was actually a Mississippi State pitcher at one point. He's got huge stuff, huge, but he doesn't really have much command. Same thing with the 17th-rounder, Alec Barger from NC State. He had one of the, at one point this year, one of the hardest thrown fastballs in Division One that was at least recorded and nationally shared, but he also did not have great numbers this year because the command is not quite where you'd want it to be with him. And the other guy that really caught my attention would be the uh, 12th, rounder, 12th rounder, Andy Samuelson, out of uh, Juco. He did not pitch much. He's a pure 
lefty reliever with some projection, 6'4", 190 pounds or so. And despite not pitching much, I think it was 26 innings, he had a 17.2 maybe? or It was at, it was at least 17 strikeouts per nine rate, which really gets your attention because that's nearly two strikeouts per inning. So those are the guys that I was definitely watching on day two, uh, day three. And as you can probably tell by now, this is why we have Matt around because not only is he going to be kind of a resource for us on these, you know, these early picks where everyone's going to be really kind of interested on the, you know, the Langoliers and the Shoemakes of the world, but Matt is also digging deep on all these, you know, whether it be the top 500 prospects to even the guys that are only kind of on the periphery of being being known in the draft world. Matt is always on top of these, and we really appreciate all the insight that he provides. On a, on a day-to-day basis in terms of understanding what's going on in the draft. The short version of this is we're not going to really know how good this draft is for a little while. And, you know, I think we're all willing to admit the fact that we're kind of dealing in an industry w- in terms of prospects that is kind of going to prove us wrong a lot, and we're going to be wrong a lot. And a lot of times it's going to break our hearts, and then other times we're going to be pleasantly surprised. So these are all guys where we kind of watching uh, watching closely going forward. Uh, the next big project, project for us now, now that we have these new guys in the fold, is we have the, the all-star break that's going to be coming up, and we're going to be trying to figure out where to put these guys in our top 30 draft pros, or our top 30 prospects list overall. Uh, I'm sure that's going to be a fairly interesting discussion. Uh, where are we going to put, I mean, Langoliers for sure will be on, on there. After that, where a lot of these other guys end up, it's going to remain to be seen, uh, especially in terms of prospect graduations over the next, you know, over the next month or so that are, that are going to be happening, particularly Austin Riley. So it's going to be interesting to look at going forward. We appreciate all the support that you guys have been giving us. Sorry we haven't cut this a little bit short, but right now I'm kind of sitting here on the beach, and it sounds like there's a hurricane coming with all this weather coming. So I want to make sure we get this recording in before we let you go. Thanks again for all the support. Make sure you follow the podcast on Road, the number two Atlanta, on Twitter, where you can find when the new episodes get posted. This will also be posted on TalkingChop.com, and will be appearing in the Talking Chop feed on iTunes. So if you want to subscribe to this podcast, make sure you subscribe to that feed on iTunes. It not only gets you the Talking Chop podcast, where you get to make fun of Brad for his Ozzy Albies trade takes, and you know, and you get to hear about what's going on in the Major League Club, but you also get to hear our lovely voices talking about the minor leagues as well as the draft. And until next time, guys, we'll see you on the road.